So I was wondering if we could kind of like loop back a little bit. Um, if you could take me through what happened on that morning. Um, actually didn't start. I mean, you mean when, after she died? Yeah. Yeah. Um, her, I mean, Martha was scheduled to work a shift in the hospital. And when she wasn't up um, to have coffee with her father in the morning, he went to her bedroom to wake her up. And that's where he found she, you know, she was dead. She had um, tried to get out of bed and fallen on the floor, and she hadn't made it to the door to call for help. That's how, how sudden an adverse reaction can be. Um, the result was just catastrophic and, and total. Canadian Patient Safety Institute presents Patient. A non-fiction medical podcast about the people trying to fix modern healthcare from the inside out. My name is Jordan Bloom. So yeah, if you can picture one of those little old ladies driving a scooter, you know, with a scarf flying in the background, and usually they have a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. Well, that's me except for the cigarette part. This is Mary Ann Murray. The first time we spoke, she was just coming in from her garden. Uh, well, I grew up in farm country, so I can't compete with the professionals who grow vegetables. So I just grow flowers. Two years ago, one of our, our girls got married actually in the backyard with the big tent wedding. And, uh, yeah, it was lovely because it, it started to rain a bit, and so we had to move where the ceremony was being held. So we just went out the front and cut all these hydrangeas, and they, they actually made an aisle going down um, inside the tent, which looked just lovely. Could you define that term? Well, a never event is a, a term used in the patient safety industry to define a series of events that that should never happen. That's Dr. Peter Pisters. He's the president and CEO of the University Health Network in Toronto. Before that, he was a cancer surgeon, a researcher, and a professor. If you went onto University Avenue and you surveyed lay people and you asked them the question, is there ever a time in clinical medicine where uh, a team should operate on the wrong body part? It's very clear that an average lay person would look at us and say, no, that should never happen. A never event. An event that should never have happened. In 2002, something happened to Martha, Marianne's daughter. A never event. The trouble with a never event is you never know how to figure out how exactly it happened. Because based on every policy and rule in place, it was never supposed to. Yeah, Martha was um, the eldest of our children, and uh, she was probably the most passionate and compassionate person that, that I know. And she was studying nursing, wanting to help those who were, were sick and in need. Um, and so, you know, she was focused on her, her school. She worked part-time. She um, helped out around the house and spent a lot of evenings doing homework with her little sister. Martha was, was diagnosed with having bipolar disorder, which means that she was having trouble 
um, controlling her emotions. She would get really happy, really high, and really low and, and depressed. And, um, you know, it, it happens a lot. And she was put on lithium to treat mood swings. Lithium is a chemical often used as a medicine to treat mood disorders. We don't have a perfect sense of how it works, but over 50 years of use has earned it a reputation as an effective mood stabilizer. It's considered safe if administered and used correctly, though a doctor needs to know your medical history before prescribing it, as it can cause issues for people with heart problems. Also, global advisory, I am not a doctor or healthcare provider of any kind. Please don't make any medical decisions based solely on this podcast. Let's get back to Marianne. When, when Martha died, it was a shock, and we didn't know what happened, and we wanted to understand what what had gone on. We, you know, we knew that she had started taking this drug. We thought she was taking it as prescribed, which she was. We didn't think that she was taking anything else, which she was not. So um, we were waiting for answers, and we, we initially didn't get any. For months, no one contacted us. No one told us what had happened. Um, it, it took months and months to get a copy of her autopsy report, and to find out that her death had simply been classed as a natural death and the case had been closed. That wasn't good enough for us. Marianne and her family started gathering Martha's medical files. They started asking questions. We thought we can't change what happened, um, but we can do what we can to try to help prevent this from happening again. What they discovered about Martha's death doesn't unfold cleanly. The timeline is messy, but the conclusions that they reached are, at this point, generally agreed upon. For this all to make sense, there's a few things that you need to know. In the year prior to her death, Martha had undergone multiple EKGs, which is a test that checks for problems with the electrical activity of the heart. Martha had experienced bouts of accelerated heart rate during these tests, which were accounted for by anxiety. Because of this rationale, her test results were considered to be normal. Eleven days prior to her death, Martha's lithium prescription had been increased by her psychiatrist. During the last year of her life, Martha had multiple care providers. Like many people, she had a psychiatrist treating her mental health needs, a cardiologist looking at her heart, etc. So we started gathering together her medical files, and um, we started looking for answers. And they started making noise. Stories running in the Toronto Star and on the CBC about Martha. Events actively lobbying the coroner's office to reopen the investigation, which eventually, after the pressure mounted, the coroner did. And they found something. The year before her death, Martha's cardiologist had ordered a test that revealed that her accelerated heart rate wasn't the product of anxiety, but of a congenital heart defect, a problem with the structure of the heart that's present from birth. Just because someone has a mental health diagnosis doesn't mean that they can't also suffer from diabetes or from a heart problem or from, you know, some other physical illness. But Martha's cardiologist never saw the results of that test for reasons that we're going to get into later. But what that means is that Martha was never informed that she had a congenital heart defect. It means that a note was never added to her file. So, when her psychiatrist went to up her lithium dosage in response to her mental health needs, Martha didn't know that she was in danger because she didn't know that she was at risk for the kind of heart-related side effects lithium can cause. Um, what did they call it? A, uh, 
she had a fatal cardiac event, meaning that her heart just stopped. Martha's heart was defective, and she was prescribed a drug that was dangerous for people with heart defects. And that's why she died. Which should feel like an answer, even though it didn't. Patients is brought to you by the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. Established by Health Canada in 2003, the Canadian Patient Safety Institute works with governments, health organizations, leaders, and healthcare providers to inspire extraordinary improvement in patient safety and quality. To learn more about CPSI, visit patientsafetyinstitute.ca. No, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, I think that this really addresses you know, also a higher level issue in our system related to care coordination and to uh, many times the fact that we continue to dichotomize the treatment of physical illness and mental illness, um, not only among different providers, but frequently in different organizations altogether. And when an individual is seeking care in two different organizations and those organizations don't share um, the information and there's no holistic a picture of the patient or a unified list of medications, um, we can run into challenges like this where, um, where adverse effects or drug-drug interactions can come into play. A lot of times, I think patients leave the hospital or their doctor's office not really understanding fully what medications they're supposed to be on. And so when it comes to filling a prescription in the community, sometimes we're not given the information of why things are changed. This is Alice Watt. She's a medication safety specialist with the Institute for Safe Medication Practices and a clinical hospital pharmacist. I think the bottom line is, according to the WHO, unsafe medication practices and medication errors are a leading cause of injury and avoidable harm in healthcare systems across the world. So Marianne had discovered that the cause of her daughter's death was a reaction caused by a mood stabilizer that reacted negatively with an existing heart condition. She knew the what, but not the why. Why didn't her cardiologist see the test results showing that Martha had a congenital heart defect? Why didn't her psychiatrist bump into a cardiac warning in her records? Why? I, I think it's the way the system went. The cardiologist didn't read the report because she didn't come back to see him. She thought that no news was good news, so she didn't come back for a follow-up. He, in his practice, um, waited for the patient to be in front of him before he read the report. He was cautioned by his college that when you order tests, you have an obligation to read the results and be proactive to contact the patient if the results are negative. But that's not what happened. That's not what the practice was at that time. And it's probably likely that he's not the only person in this country that was following that kind of practice. So even though there was um, a note in her file not to give her lithium, there's nothing that says another doctor has to obey something someone else has written there. I think people try to do their best, but when their best results in failure, then it should be reported and let, let 
you know, the powers that be see, well, is this a trend that's happening? Is there alerts that we could send out? What can we do to help reduce the number of these harm events that are happening across this country? The cardiologist waited for their patient to come back before looking at test results, and Marianne assumed that no news was good news. Chalk it up to a bad procedure. Systems error. Bureaucratic catastrophe. So where do you go from there? Can any amount of insight or understanding heal something like this? This isn't a cute podcast host thing where I ask the question just so that I can answer it. I genuinely don't know the answer to this. So that's what I asked Marianne. What do you do after something like this happens? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we took a look and we thought, what was she trying to do? And she was trying to help people who were ill. So you think, well, if it was reversed, what would she have done if it had been me? I mean, I'm doing this because she can't, but that's what she would do. So you think all you can do is try to improve things so that it doesn't happen to others. I think that, unfortunately, has become her legacy. There's no justification when someone dies and it's covered up and they just call it a natural death and they make no changes or recommendations for changes. It's, It's just not acceptable. You know, Martha died as an outpatient of a hospital and until I called about was more than a year later, they weren't aware that the patient had died. So Marianne started there. You see, when Martha died and her death was labeled the result of natural causes, it meant that there was no reporting. None of her healthcare providers knew that one of their patients had even died. You can't really prevent a problem from happening if nobody knows that it happened. Marianne was about to embark on a deep dive into the world of patient safety, this emerging scientific field she knew essentially nothing about. But she had to start somewhere. So she started with reporting. I think that in what we um, often see still in our environment is confusion about the terms quality and safety. And sometimes we see people, even experienced people, using those terms interchangeably. But those terms, quality and safety, are not synonyms. And we need to recognize that, uh, that safety is distinct from quality. Uh, there is an overlap in those Venn diagrams, but we can measure safety and we need to carefully measure and quantify safety in the organization. When harm occurs, you need to report it. That's the only way that you're going to see how often are these occurring, what's going wrong to make these, um, these adverse events occur. And that's the only way that you're going to come up with really solid ground on how to prevent it from happening again. You know, in, in all other areas but medicine, we have reporting that works very well. Um, you look at our uh, workplace safety. You know, reporting of workplace accidents is mandatory. They collect the statistics, they can see how many times someone falls off a ladder or how many times someone hurts their index finger in a piece of machinery. You know, in cancer cases, 
we report how many cases of cancer occur each year so you can see how many people are actually being affected. So when you started getting through to people, when I guess when the right people started recognizing what had happened to Martha, uh, what did they do? What happened? Through a lot of effort and a lot of assistance, we were able to get the case reopened um, with a new chief coroner and eventually, um, in addition to a letter of apology, we, we've also received seven recommendations and changes from that office. The Office of the Chief Coroner in Ontario agreed to start reporting adverse drug reactions to Health Canada for the first time. That's huge. And until the questions were raised with Martha's death, they had never taken the time to report those adverse reaction fatalities to Health Canada. A nationwide change to reporting. That's huge. But this isn't the story of how Marianne fixed modern health care because, of course, it isn't. It's the story of a family that lost a daughter. That, in the name of that daughter's compassion, set out to help prevent harm from befalling others. I guess the crux of this is that we've all been patients at some point in our lives. Martha was a patient. And because of what happened to her, Marianne has found this calling for patient safety, which is a term and field of study that many of you are probably bumping into for the first time here. So now we're going to define it and talk about some of the ways that advocates like Marianne are trying to make being a patient safer. Could you tell me a little bit about the, um, the five questions? There was like 30 when you guys started. Yeah, well, we had started, Lisa Seaver and myself, pharmacists, we did a sort of a worldwide web search of all the tools and questions that are out there. And we kind of came across like just so many questions that we could ask. And we generated a list of three full pages of questions, what to do before you see the doctor, or what questions to ask when you're at the doctor's office or when you pick up your prescriptions. But when we showed it to the Patients for Patient Safety Canada group, they were very kind and generous with their comments, but it was just too much information. There's no way that we could have included all these questions in the short period of time that a patient sees their doctor. Yeah, it's, it's a great, um, it's a great program. The five questions to ask was a collaboration between um, the Institute of Safe Medication Practice and CPSI and patients. And they came up with this, you know, simple little um, poster, or you can get it in a card that you can put in your wallet, so that people can know what they should be asking and and understand to keep themselves safe. That has been so successful that um, we took it to the WHO at a, a launch about medication safety. It's now in over 20 languages, and. You know, people can um, can really learn what to ask so that they they know what medication they're taking. They understand what the medication should be doing. They understand how long they should take it. They understand what serious side effects they should look out for. And I think when you have that kind of knowledge, whether it's a patient or the patient's family, you become that first line of defense, and you can really help your loved ones not. Um, get into a situation where they have a really serious adverse reaction. 
there's significant power differential, there's information uh, asymmetry, and um, that, uh, that definitely creates barriers with many patients feeling intimidated uh, to ask questions. Right. So there's this question that kind of keeps coming up regarding, I guess, where's the line between what patients can be doing to improve their safety and what providers can be doing, and I guess by extension, uh, the healthcare industry as a whole. And this is an interesting conversation also, an interesting uh, point for discussion, is regulatory oversight over safety. And uh, if you look at two systems that serve the public, uh, for example, the aviation industry, uh, we have tight regulation uh, over commercial aviation. And that's done deliberately to ensure safety of the public. Um, and uh, when you look closely at the impact of, uh, of organized regulatory approaches to safety, you can see that they have, uh, together with the industry, uh, resulted in massive improvements in, in the safety of commercial airline travel. Now, when you look at um, preventable harm uh, that's occurring in the medical industry, um, you can see the uh, the estimates in Canada are that um, upwards of 20,000 patients may die every year from preventable harm. Uh, we have a publicly funded system uh, in Canada. If we were running a publicly funded airline that had 20,000 deaths per year, that would be shut down immediately. Uh, a commission would be created to understand why 20,000 people were dying. and. Regulations would result in that. That would probably include a government agency that oversees uh, safety. You know, generally, medicine is about systems, and people follow procedures and systems. So if you have errors that occur so that the patient is harmed, it's likely that the same kind of errors are occurring elsewhere, and other patients are also being harmed. With, with Martha, I'm sure that this was not an act of intent on anyone's part. People followed their regular procedures and this was the outcome. So it stands to reason that this was not um, an isolated event with one individual, that whatever happened to her probably happens elsewhere and it probably happens fairly frequently because if the same systems are in place, the same holes in the systems are there as well. Talking to someone about systems and policy starts to feel a little bit numbing when it's in the context of a tragedy like this. But ultimately, uh, and I think that our conversations with Dr. Pisters and Alice and Marianne revealed this, if you can't approach an issue like this from a bird's eye view, you're never really going to have the data to be able to make something with so many moving parts work better. We wrapped up our conversation with Marianne by discussing... I guess what's next for her? Beyond scooter rides and evenings in the garden, what does she want to see change in her pursuit of patient safety? The right cultural shift is for everybody to partner together. I guess it's just unacceptable to me that that these people who have been harmed, these are our teachable moments. These are the people who have, have given us these opportunities to learn, and we just can't bury that information. Hmm. You can, you can see why I spend so much time in solitude at my garden. Just, uh, <laughs> it's something I can control. Yeah. Where this, you know, this, it's, it's so difficult because I'm not a physician, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a politician, I, you know, I'm not a reporter. 
So really, I have no um, ability to do any of these things myself. The only thing I can do is encourage others to do them. We've, we're in an age of computer. We can see how many of these events are happening. We can see where they're happening. We can find the holes that are allowing them to happen. And we can, we can help improve things. Providers don't want to cause harm. That's not why they go into healthcare. Right. Patients want to get better. That's why they're seeking healthcare. You think we just have to move past um, the idea that that somehow it's it's shameful when mistakes happen. It's unfortunate when they happen, but we can learn so much by these human studies to prevent them from happening again. This season of Patient is produced by the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. For more information on the five questions and other projects people like Marianne, Alice, and Dr. Pisters are all working on to improve patient safety, visit patientsafetyinstitute.ca. Patient is produced by Scott Winder, Cecilia Bloxham, Carla Horan, and myself, Jordan Blumen. Thanks for listening.